Okay, First Timothy chapter 4. What we've been talking really about over the last few weeks is basically this, that, uh, that, that the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, his, his protege, a disciple of his, a spiritual child of his, is uh, he's encouraged him to exercise himself in a spiritual way. In other words, to practice, to participate in activity that will strengthen him spiritually, that will cause him to grow and mature uh, as a Christian. And not only to, to do this himself, but, but also to present these things to the people to whom he ministers and encourage them to do the same. The question, guys, before us is this, and gals, just do we want to grow as Christians or are we satisfied being where we are? Do we want to grow in our understanding? Do we want to grow in, in our application? Do we want to ref, be a reflection of the mercy and the greatness and the grandness and the beauty of God in our lives as we minister to one another and we minister to people in this world? Is that something that we're passionate about? Or are we just satisfied with things the way that they are? And I hope you're not satisfied. Let me tell you, it's easy to, to get to that point where you feel you're tired. That's what we're talking about. We're going to talk about that more this morning. Is wearing. It, it, it's, it's tiring. It takes energy. It takes activity. And we're getting older. Let's face it, a lot of us are getting older. Even the young among us are getting older, right? That's something we can say for everybody. Even Evan's getting older. Even Lorelai's getting older. Even Eleanor's getting older. And I think one of the things we need to be cautious of in our day, and let me tell you, I'm, just, I'm, getting, I'm as guilty of this as anybody else because I'm 64 years not and old now. There's part of me that says, you know what, I've put my time in. I've done my part. It's time for me to just kick back a little bit and, 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 and enjoy my life, spend more time with my kids, spend more time with my grandkids, do these things and do that thing. But let me tell you, I haven't, just, I haven't done that because God won't let me do it. He hasn't released me yet, and I'm here until he releases me. But let me tell you, there's some things in which in, that we need to be satisfied in. We need to be satisfied in the fact that Jesus loves me, this I know. We need to be satisfied in the fact that Jesus has paid the penalty for all of our sins and we've been forgiven of everything. But we can never have a, a, a retirement mentality when it comes to being a Christian. It is our life. It is the root of it. It is the heart of it. It's everything about it. And the only time things are really, really good is when Christ is first in everything. And then mysteriously, everything else falls into place perfectly. This morning we're going to be 
starting with verse 10 and probably finishing through 13 or 14. I'm not exactly sure where we're going to find ourselves. But here from the New American Standard, the Word of God. For it is for this that we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. We studied as we ended last week that with the things that Paul is sharing with Timothy, they are very, they're trustworthy, or the word is true is basically what it says. And not only this, but the whole counsel of God, the same thing can be said about, that the word is true, that the word is dependable, that the word is worthy of believing and abiding in, and that be the word of God. Spiritual discipline, my friends, is something that is worthy of being weary from. I've shared this with you before, but there's some things that I abhor. And one of those is weeding. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. So next time you see me out here pulling weeds, understand that I am making a abundantly great sacrifice for doing what I'm doing because I hate it. I hated it so much that my parents knew it that they used to use it to discipline me. Don't get a spanking this time. What you need to do is you get to go out there and weed all the flower beds around the house. And let me tell you, I'm not sure it really taught me anything but contempt. I hated it. Let me tell you, that's a weariness. And now we get tired of it. I would get tired from doing it. But it's a weariness that, that doesn't really avail to anything. It doesn't accomplish anything. It's not worth being tired about. But when we're talking about the spiritual disciplines of prayer and the study and the reading of God's word and, and participation in worship, in particular the sacraments, and in doing works of service, There's a weariness that comes with those things that is worth having. It's worth seeking. It's worth wanting. There's just a sweetness about being spiritually tired. 
this God. In the past, guys, we've done some phenomenal things together. Years ago, there was a, a there was a widowed lady who came to the church because her neighbors, uh, Mike and Terry Steinlin, became aware of her circumstances. She was she, her husband had recently died, and she was left with a house, but she had very little income, and she was struggling a great deal. And her name was Thelma Brown, and she she came to church and eventually became a member of the church. Uh, but I can remember. And, and some of you guys can remember this too. Uh, that when that she had, uh, she was in need of a new roof on her house, and every time it rained, she would have water running into her house. That's how bad the roof got. And the men of the church and the ladies helped by bringing water to us, and all of that. We took three days. Guys took off from work. People used vacation days. And we stripped the old roof off and we put a brand new roof on our house at absolutely no cost to her. And let me tell you, there was a bonding that took place when we did that and other things that we've done before that has brought men in this church and women together in a way that we would never, we would never be apart from those kinds of things. Were we tired? Let me tell you, I'm not sure that I ever, ever my whole lifetime. I had some hard days doing manual labor. I'm not sure that I ever went home any tireder than I did on those days because we were out in the hot sun, stupid us. We did it sometime in the summertime, I think. And we worked through the day in the heat of the day and all of that. And I can remember the conversations and the camaraderie that we had and the laughter and the, just the joy that we had in each other being there doing what we were doing. And there was a weariness. But you know, sometimes there's a weariness that takes place because of physical things that we do in the world that has spiritual ramifications for it. Very much like when we built this church building. Lots of work, lots of effort. And I understand that we're older now. I couldn't put days in like I used to. I can't do that. I've been to the point doing things recently when I've hit the wall, when I've just gotten to the point where I could hardly even pick my arm up or lift a leg to walk. I can't do it like I used to anymore. But we still need to be doing as much of that sort of thing as we can. Really. What do you think the world says when they hear about things like that happening? You think maybe some people are saying, well, those people must really believe what they say they believe in because they're demonstrating it in a way that you just can't doubt it, that they really believe it. It may not be true, but it must be, maybe it must be misled or something like that. But they obviously strongly are convicted and believe in what they say they believe. It's 
Sometimes it's good to be weary, guys, and being a believer demands that there be times when you are weary. Physically and spiritually. And sometimes both at the same time. Very often you hear theologians talk about the means of grace, and depending on who you're reading, it has a different list. But what I would say to you this morning is, is basically what we're talking about here, the means of grace are the Bible, the reading and the study of the Word of God, prayer, participation in worship, and in particular the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism, and number four is works of service. Doing things for other people. For no other reason than you love Jesus. Not because you want to get patted on the back because you're such a great person. Not because you want to be compensated for it in some way. But doing it simply because you love Jesus. And you love Jesus' people. And you want to show mercy to other people just as you've received from God. Do you practice those means of grace? Let me tell you, if you take any one of those out of the formula, you will not grow as a Christian. You may in some superficial ways, but in the deep-seated, heartfelt way that we're talking about, it cannot happen apart from those four things at least. What is the proper motivation for striving? I would say it's hope. It's not hope in ourselves, not hope in our own abilities. As Paul writes here, hope on the living God. If you think about it, every other message that people in the world share share with other people is really a message without hope. They may make it sound like there's hope that's in it and, and, and all of that, but the truth of the matter is this, is we have the only religion, we have the only understanding, the only practice that really is the basic for, basis for any hope at all. What every other other religion tells you is hope in yourself, hope in your own abilities. Do it your way. Do it on your own. Christianity can be defined in a lot of ways, but let me tell you, one of the biggest ways is it is the religion of Hope in God. Hope in the promises of God. I mean, every religion promises something to the people who adhere to it. And I hear people say today, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something. That is hogwash. That's a cop-out. Anything's not going to save people, guys. There's only one thing that will. That's Jesus Christ. Hope in Him. 
So fix our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men. Oh, my goodness. It says right there that God wants to save absolutely everybody. It's his intention to save every person. And he says, especially believers. Wow. What do you make of that? Well, there's some things that we need to understand that Savior typically in the Bible has to do with salvation. But that's not the only application of it. Sometimes it means to do things. For instance, there's a sense in which God does save all people. At least certain times in certain ways, right? Because we understand this, that when it rains in Brian Buzzle's neighborhood, it doesn't just rain on his house. It rains on all the houses in his neighborhood, whether they be houses of believers or unbelievers. It's what we call common grace, guys. Does God feed unbelievers? Does God sometimes save them from war? Does God sometimes save them from illness? Etc., etc., etc. So we need to understand that this is not saving people in what we would call a salvific way. In other words, not saving them from their sins. But sometimes, in a sense, saving them from some of the consequence of sin. Let me just say this, that very often that when we look on things that happen to other people, we sometimes have the mentality, well, that just uh, kind of what they had coming. You know, they're not very nice people and, you know, and all of that. But we've also known, known very wonderful, beautiful, God-loving, Christ-centered people who have suffered very great tra- uh, drastic things, Right? But see, there's a difference, and that is this, is that we know that we have a Savior that saved us not, that only doesn't, doesn't provide for us the food that we need and the rain that we need and the sun that we need to shine and all those things. It goes way beyond that. He's provided us with salvation, the forgiveness of our sins against him. Some of the neat things coming from all the storm stories that you've heard. Uh, let me tell you, it's, it's, an, it's a miracle that Justin and Lindsay wound up as they did. If you've seen pictures of their yard, if you've seen pictures of their neighborhood, and the description we're, get, we're getting is, yes, their 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 yard is just it's it's going to take them months to clean their yard up. They're, they they picked up around 200 shingles out of their yard this week, and they don't even have a shingled house. It's a metal roof house. They're not their shingles. They're shingles that came off of someone else's house and wound up in their yard. 150 of them. I know that number because Lindsay made a deal with Luke and Sarah that for everyone they picked up that she would give them something. So, so they know how many they picked up. But what they're hearing over and over again from people around them is they can't believe 
how it was like their house was protected in the middle of this. I mean, neighbors' houses were, you know, damaged where it's going to take weeks and months to do the repairs and all of that. We're talking about people right beside them, but, but at the same time, they're sitting there, and yeah, there's a tree that's split in half in their front yard, and there's not a single leaf left on it, and every palm tree in the, in the backyard is laying down. But inside their house is like this sanctuary that God protected. Do you understand if they had flooded, they would have lost every worldly possession they have but what they could put again into their car? Wow. God is good. And let me tell you, even when he doesn't do things like that, God is good. And some of us suffered more damage and we were without power longer than other people. The rest of us are going to sit here and say, well, they were out power because they're just not as good as I am. They're worse sinners than we are. And so they went, went longer without power than I did. That's ridiculous. hope you don't have that mindset, period. Just need to rejoice in God's provision and caring and watching over us in the midst of things like that. It's amazing. You know, we went to we went to bed that night and we lost our power at midnight. And I went to bed and I went to sleep. <laughs> and of course, Lindsay and Lori were up and they were watching the TV as long as we had power and, you know, this, that and the other and keeping up with where it was. And I woke up a couple of times. I woke up when we were in the, the eye of it and it was just deathly quiet outside, you know. And other times when you could hear the, the wind blowing and. And all of that, but when you're a believer, you know, stuff is nothing worth panicking about. Nothing is worth panicking about. Paul goes on to say, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. There's a few people in here that are youthful. Probably you wouldn't describe most of us as being youthful anymore. Uh, But obviously, Timothy was young for someone to be in the kind of position that he was in. Certainly there were lots of other guys who were older than Timothy was that Paul could have leaned upon as their right-hand man or his right-hand man. I would imagine there were times when people had conversations with Paul about this up young upstart Timothy. How come he's where he is and I'm not or so-and-so's not? They seem like they're more qualified to me for that. Sometimes we think that just because someone's older, that means that they're more qualified. Well, something we need to understand from the very get-go here, the important thing is not how old you are physically, but how old you are spiritually. 
And obviously, was Paul was very comfortable having Timothy in this great position that he was in, even though he was still a relatively young man. Why? Because Paul knew that he was very deep when it came to the Spirit. When I first became a pastor, I was 42 years old which we wouldn't describe as young. But I'd only been a Christian for six years. Now, I'm sure there were some conversations that took place. As a matter of fact, I know there were conversations that took place. Is Keith really ready to do this? And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you need to understand that Lori and I both questioned whether we were ready to do this, if we should be pursuing it. And we just couldn't get away from it. We just could not get away from it. There are a lot of things I did as a young pastor that I regret now. There's some things I wish I could go back and redo. Uh, And and some of that stuff went on for a while. Uh, So I understand what it's like to sometimes feel intimidated because you're a little bit on the younger side in a sense. But again, the thing that we need to, we, we look at age very often and we jump to the, the, the conclusion that because so-and-so is older, they're more qualified. They've, and there is, there is a place for life experience. Don't get me wrong. That's very important. We used to sit around because when I was in seminary, you may not realize it, but there's a good number of older guys that are going to seminary today. It's not just the young guys coming right out of college. Not the guys who grew up in Sunday school and the youth group and all that. Some of them are those, but a lot of them are older guys. People that I went to school with, some of them were retired. They were 60 years old. They'd retired from their regular job already. And now they were feeling called by God to go into the ministry. And they were doing that. But we would sit around because I, you know, I hung around with the older guys because we had more in common than, than I had with some of the 20 year olds and, you know, 25 year olds. And we would kind of joke about they're going to get out in the church and the church is going to eat them alive. Because some of them, they've, they, you know, they've just gone to school. Like they've never really had a job in their life they depended upon. They've never had to do this. They've never had to do that. They're not really prepared to deal with people on a regular basis. You know, when you run the whole gamut of what they're going to have to be dealing with and how they have to deal with it. And let me tell you, it's not, it's not, not surprising that the vast majority of guys coming out of seminary, they'll enter into ministry. They don't stay in that particular ministry very long before you know it, they've moved somewhere else. It's not unusual for me to bump into people that I, I knew when I was in seminary that have been in eight or ten different churches in the last 20 years. Now they're getting older. But can you imagine being Timothy? And I can imagine Paul at times had to de- had to defend Timothy. But we understand this that Paul knew Timothy's heart in ways that none of these other people probably did. But he tells him, he says, do not let anyone look down on your youthfulness. In other words, they may, you know, don't let it get to you. 
They may question your ability. They may question whether you ought to be doing what you're doing. They may question this, that, or the other, but don't let them drive you from your task. Stay on track. Rather, in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. In other words, let your spiritual nature flow forth. Your spiritual maturity. Let that determine what your life looks like, not what the opinion of other people might be. encourages Timothy to be an example to the brethren in a number of ways in his speech and what he says. There's a maturity that comes in, in knowing when to speak and when not to say anything. Right? There's a maturity that comes when you know what to say and what not to say. Right? In other words, Paul is telling him, be someone who chooses your words carefully and uses your opportunities wisely. And I would imagine in particular he had thoughts of the speech associated with teaching and preaching more than anything else. Not only be an example in, in, in your speech, but also in your conduct. In the manner in which you behave. In the manner in which you conduct your life. Privately and publicly. Don't leave room for moral charges to be brought against you. Be someone who practices what he preaches. Who does what he encourages other people to do. Not only in speech and conduct, but in in love, do it for the right reasons. Respond to people out of love, not out of anger. Let love be the motivation for what you do and how you are. Love for Christ first, love for the brethren second. And love for unbelievers too. Faith. Where would Christianity be if you took faith out of it? It would be nothing. 
It would be meaningless. It would be worthless. What do we demonstrate in our life? Is it faith? Is it faith in God? Or is it faith in ourselves? Faith in His ability or faith in our abilities? Faith in what we have or faith in what He can give us and gives us? Also in purity... I don't know about you, but I don't feel very pure at all. Matter of fact, I would probably question you if you told me that you felt very pure. Sometimes we let our feelings determine what we think reality is. But in regard to this, guys... It matters what you think, and it matters what I think. It matters what you see, and it matters what I see. But more than anything else, it matters what God sees. And I want to remind you this morning of something that is very precious and very pure, and that is this, that is if you are a child of God, that when he looks upon you, he sees you in absolute perfection and purity. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. Because Jesus is your surety, not you. No longer you. Until I come, Paul says, pay attention to reading to encouragement, to teaching. He's already told Timothy to pay attention, close attention to some other things. Now, what does he mean by reading? Is, is he talking about Timothy sitting down, you know, at night with his candle burning and reading a Sherlock Holmes novel? We probably don't think so. We have a good bit of certainty that it has to do with the Bible, right? And what have we said about those means of grace? What is one of the first things that we mention? It is the Word of God. It's the Bible. And we've said this a number of times over the last few weeks, and that is this. It's ridiculous for us to believe that we will ever grow as a Christian apart from study and the reading of the Word of God. It just won't happen. It can't happen. It's not going to happen. And it's something you have to do yourself. It's, it's not something anybody can do for you. you if you want to grow... In your maturity as a believer, you have to immerse yourself in the Word of God. It will not happen apart from it. It can't. It won't. Well, 
Well, think about this, too. That in those days, did they have the Bible available at hand? Did every family have a Bible sitting on their coffee table? Did everyone have two or three of them shoved into the bookcase in the corner? No. We understand that in those days, the people were absolutely dependent upon people reading the Bible publicly. Of hearing the word of God. And we need to understand this. We see this in Ezra. We see this with Moses. There there were times when they stood and they did nothing. But they read God's word to the people. They didn't expound on it. They didn't exhort them on it. They didn't do anything with it other than read it to them. And there were a lot of them who could not even read it all. And look at us. I don't know how, I might have 10 or 15 Bibles. How many do you have? How many of them are all marked up? And how many of them are just, they're like brand new. They've only been opened up maybe one time. And they sat. And they sat. So I'd imagine there were times when Timothy just read. So people would hear God's word. There was a time early on in the church we decided to do this as a congregation. Everybody in the congregation committed to do this, all the adults. That is, we ordered New Testament tapes. And we committed to one another that over a three or four week period that we would listen to the whole New Testament. And we did that. See, things like that were unheard of back in the days of of Timothy. And it didn't take near as long as you thought. It takes like 29 hours or something like that to, to go through it. Did you know you can read all the way through the Bible and and not not it doesn't take you near as long as you think it might? You might think, well, if I sat down and read it, it would take me two months to get all the way through it, but it's not. It's just a matter of a few days. If you did nothing, they can read it. Why do you think we have Bible reading and worships? People have complained. We don't do the Apostles' Creed. Let me tell you, the Apostles' Creed is not in the Bible. Some of you may be shocked by that. It's not in the Bible. And I think it's okay for us to do it all every now and then, but it's not something I think you and I need to be doing every week. It's more important for us to be reading Scripture like we do every week. Paul writes this in Romans 10:17 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. He also tells Timothy to pay attention, close attention to encouragement to encourage one another. 
I tell you what, if you walk out of here on a Sunday morning and you feel like the pastor's done nothing but just beat you up, just beat you with that, taking that Bible and beating you for 30 minutes over it, and you're depressed when you leave here and all of that, then I've failed and you need to get me out of here. Every sermon should end with a note of encouragement. It really should. I've heard some that haven't come close. And I know that, you know, you've heard me recommend that you guys be listening to other preachers and other Bible teachers, not just me. Please don't just be listening to me, but you need to be careful who you listen to. But first of all, good preaching is biblical preaching. Okay? But it involves listening and learning, which you would classify all teaching, because preaching is a form of, of teaching, right? You'd classify all, you know, you listen or you read or you do something, and then you learn from it, Right? But good preaching always challenges us to act based upon what we've learned. Encourages us to live it, to do it, to practice it. Good preaching always encourages us to do something. It says, also pay attention to your teaching. Unfortunately, in our day, and I think this is an area where church, the church for a long time really did give great service to pastors, but in our day, in a lot of circles, uh, the pastor is just basically expected to be a jack-of-all-trades, to be the primary fundraiser for the church, to be the primary financial person, to, to you know, be the, the person who always, always makes hospital visitations, person who does all the teaching that takes place, and so on and so on and so on. And we wonder sometimes why so, such a large percentage of guys that graduate from seminary and go to the ministry, they leave within five years. It's like 80%. It's a huge number. And a lot of it has got nothing at all to do with anything other than people having unrealistic expectations for this pastor person to be everything and do everything. Fortunately, it's not true here. We have very active deacons and very active elders, and we have a lot of other people. They're not officers that are really active. People get mad at me if they see me pulling weeds. Next time I'm going to tell you, so leave me alone. I'm doing a rack of penance here, okay? Let me tell you guys, I enjoy doing stuff like that when I'm doing it with you or I'm doing it for you and whatever. That's the reason I do it. 
There are very, 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 very work, few work days, even days we were doing construction. When I was not here working right alongside everybody else, and I wouldn't be anyplace else. That's just not me. But at the same time, I don't worry about that stuff because I know there are men here who will take care of it. And wives, women, that will take care of those things. Sometimes it's a control thing. I know churches and I know pastors, they think that they have to control everything. The way you control everything is you do everything or you dictate specifically to each person what they're supposed to do. Everything that gets done gets done directly under your authority. I just heard of a couple that I love. I've known a long time. I have, you know, he's uh, he's a missionary. Uh, he and his wife are missionaries, and I've known them for a long time, and I love them to death. And they're some of the most Christ-centered people I know I've ever known. They just left a PCA church because the pastor is one of those people who just has to have his way when it comes to absolutely everything. That's not healthy for him. It's not healthy for his church. And when you lose people like this, I'm talking about Don and Merrill Mountain. Some of you know them. They're in another PCA church. They didn't leave the PCA. They left the church, their home church. The home church, by the way, that Don Mountain planted years ago. So particularly grievous for him. I just want to remind all of us this morning that my principal job is to preach and teach. That's my job. There's a sense in which everything else is your job. Doesn't mean I don't do other things. But and let me tell you, that's where my heart is. I may not be good at it, but I love to teach and I love to preach. I love teaching pastors class. I love teaching leadership training class. And I love spending this time on Sunday morning. Next week, we'll move on.